Netflix is riding high on its newest Western, The Harder They Fall. The movie characters are real-life black cowboys who live during the height of the Wild West, but the story of their meeting up is told with a twist. Well, since Western seems to be making a comeback, Courtney and I thought listeners would enjoy a reprise of our podcast, Westward Ho, The Lost History of the Black West. Check back next week when we post a brand new episode about the real-life adventures of those characters in The Harder They Fall. Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, it's a new year, and that means news starts. So it's fitting that we kick off the year with an episode about Black African Americans making new starts moving westward as pioneers, landowners, cowboys, and the like in the American West. I am so glad to be back with you, Aunt Carol, and our listeners. And I think an adventure into the American West is, the great way, is a great way to start an amazing new year. Now, I group this westward expansion into three chunks, early, middle, and late. For instance, the westward expansion and westward movement began earlier than most people realize. Now, the first people of African ancestry to migrate into what is now the western United States originated from central Mexico, where 200,000 Africans had been forcibly enslaved and transported between 1521 and 1821. Now, beginning in the 1600s, some of the enslaved escaped and settled on the northern frontier of the Spanish colony, seeking to improve their lives and escape the social discrimination of the central region. Also, much like you learned in the Native American episode, many slaves were freed through the Gullah Wars and several were sent with tribes during the Trail of Tears. So they're included in that westward migration. That is true. Now there's another westward expansion that Black Americans, uh, Black African Americans made that's rarely talked about. In her book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, Anna Lisa Cox talks about Black African-American settlements in the Northwest, and that was called the Northwest Territory. Now, don't confuse that with what we consider to be the Northwest today, Oregon and Washington states. The area that Cox writes about is actually what became the states of Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana. Now, as part of her research, she attempted to locate as many settlements as she could that consisted of at least one African-American-owned farm in the years between 1800 and 1860. And she was using census records and deeds and other documents to make a map. And that map actually shows 338 farms worth thousands of acres with the greater number of uh, folks residing 
in the largest and wealthiest concentrations in Ohio and Indiana. But overall, the Black African-American population that pushed into that Northwest Territory, they were also in Michigan and Wisconsin. Well, learning about these early Black settlers and pioneers was awesome for me. I grew up in Indianapolis and a field trip we always went to was a place called Connor Prairie. And normally there was not a black face in sight. But I never knew about these black pioneers. Well, Courtney, you may not have known about these early pioneers, but I bet you have a pretty good idea of what happened to the thousands of acres of land they amassed. Oh, I certainly do, Aunt Carol. And it goes back to an episode we did on how land was stolen from Black African Americans. In that episode, we talked about how land was taken through shady legal means, such as heirs' property laws, coercion, and even through violence, which included lynching. You, my dear niece, are one smart cookie. That's exactly how Black African Americans lost thousands of acres of land to the former in the former Northwest Territory and in other places around the country, too. Now, one of the most pernicious methods was through the Black Codes. Once parts of the Northwest Territory began to join America as states, their newly formed legislators began enacting Black Code laws, which were laws that prevented Black African Americans from owning land, from voting, getting an education, or working wherever they wanted to work. So it seems as if whenever Black African Americans seem to be getting a footing or a chance at the so-called American dream, systemic racism rears its ugly head. So true. Now, the next big push west was to Kansas, which had been a sanctuary for runaways during the Civil War between 1870 and 1890. Some 30,000 migrants settled in the state. Uh, The 1862 Homestead Act applied to Kansas and other Western states and territories. Settlers, get this, regardless of their race or gender, could pay a small filing fee and receive 160 acres from the federal government. In return, they agreed to reside on the land and improve it over a five-year period. And after six months, they could purchase the property for $1.25 an acre. So you can imagine, Courtney, Black African-Americans, since there was no uh, restriction on uh, color, race, gender, whatever, they took advantage of that. Uh, Benjamin Papp Singleton who was a former slave born in Nashville, Tennessee, became the leader of what was called the Exoduster Movement of 1879. And in later years, he was accorded the title Father of the Exodus. In the late 1860s, Singleton and his associates urged Blacks to acquire farmland in Tennessee. But get this, whites would not sell productive land to them. So as an alternative, Singleton began scouting land in Kansas in the early 1870s. And soon several Black families migrated to Nashville and then Singleton and his associates established the Edgefield Real Estate and Homestead Association, which steered more than 20,000 Black migrants to Kansas between 1877 and 1879. Well, like they say, there's where there's a will, there's a way. So where they couldn't get land in Tennessee, this robust population just pushed 
forward. They did. They did indeed. And in addition to pushing forward into uh, Kansas, they moved on to Oklahoma Territory, and it became the other major area for African-American migration. It was created in 1866 out of the western half of the original Indian Territory on land originally set aside for the settlement of Native Americans. Well, unfortunately, uh, we robbed Peter to pay Paul. So they were taking land from the Native Americans and giving that to the others. But um, that's the case. That's how we see our, our American history play out. Now, the famous April 22nd, 1889 run for land claims followed after that land was divided up. Now, someone very famous, uh, well, famous to us, but not to most uh, people, was a gentleman named Edwin P. McCabe, and he was the state auditor in, get this, go back to Kansas. And he moved to Oklahoma in 1890. And through his newspaper, the Langston City Herald, McCabe declared the territory, quote, the paradise of Eden and the garden of the gods. Here the Negro can rest from mob law. Here he can be secure from every ill of the Southern policies. And so he attracted along he, with his wife, Sarah, he attracted a lot of black African-Americans to come to Oklahoma. They founded Langston City, which was an all black community. And by 1891, 200 people lived in Langston City including a doctor, a minister, and a school teacher. And all in all, the Black African migration to the twin territories of Kansas and Oklahoma produced 32 all-Black towns. Now, the next push west was to the far west, Oregon, Colorado, Wyoming, Washington, Montana, Nevada, and California. But we don't have time to go into the details of the early migration of these states. But it is interesting to note that an enslaved man named York was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition that explored the, the territory that eventually became the state of Montana. And because of his dark skin, it said he appeared as a novelty to get this, the Native Americans, and the explorers were able to gain entree to them where they otherwise would have been unwelcome. Ooh. Now, early records about that territory also reveal that many Blacks were part of the lucrative fur trading in that area. So there's so much to tell about Black African-Americans moving West Courtney. Um, and maybe we'll have to do one of our famous multi-part shows. But in the meantime, I think you have something interesting to share about an historical figure from one of the states I talked about, Oklahoma. Oh, yes, I do. Now, as you know, and as our listeners probably know, I am a movie lover, but I'm a child of movie lovers. And one genre that was introduced to me very early was the Western. The movie Tombstone is my second favorite movie of all time. I can recite it word for word. And even those guilty pleasure Westerns where historical ac accuracy was not the goal, it was just very attractive people in, in Western wear, like Young Guns, American Outlaws, and Bad Girls, are some that I count in some great Saturday afternoon movie watching. But there was a very huge plot hole that I noticed, even very young. No Black people. Even though all that I've just shared about Black people in Ohio and Oklahoma and Kansas and everywhere else, no Black people. No Black people. 
even with the few black western standouts like posse in 1993 by mario van peebles django unchained by quentin tarantino the hateful eight by quentin tarantino and also the magnificent seven remake which replaces yul brenner's role with denzel washington seeing african americans and westerns was very rare for me despite the stories taking place during a time which would have included Reconstruction and many of the characters having backstories which included serving in the Civil War on both sides. That's correct because many of those folks that had uh, histories with you know part of Reconstruction or soldiers moving west that would have included a lot of Black African Americans just like we pointed out before with those numbers. Exactly. But it seemed to me that Hollywood just thought Black people weren't there. Hopefully, though, the story I'm going to share with you and our listeners was one of about one of my favorite historical figures who I feel needs a blockbuster movie of his own will shine a light on a Western hero. And this hero may have just inspired one of Hollywood's most famous lawmen. Hmm, I wonder who that is. Well, his name is Bass Reeves, and his story begins like many of our Black historical heroes and heroines in slavery. He was born in 1883 on the Reeves Plantation and was owned by William S. Reeves. Now, in 1846, Bass moved along with the family to Paris, Texas, and when William's son George left to fight for the Confederacy during the Civil War, Bass went along as his valet. Now, during this time, this is where he learned to become an expert a marksman, a quick draw, and even learned some strategy skills. Bass became so good with a gun that George often put him in the shooting contest only to collect his winnings. Hmm. Now, however, one night things changed and took a real nasty turn for Bass. It put him on the track, though, to become the legend of the West he is today. He had been cheated at a card game by his owner, George, and without thinking, he beat him unconscious. Now, Bass knew that just by putting his hands on George, he was, you know, set up for a death and on no uncertain terms. So under cover of darkness, Bass ran and ran until he got to the one place he could not be touched. And that was Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. So why was this territory the best hideout for Bass as a fugitive slave and many other outlaws? Simply put, the law couldn't touch them there. Since the Native American tribes governed themselves, anyone who wasn't a tribe member could only be brought to justice by a federal marshal. And since most military uh, men were serving fighting the Civil War, that was highly unlikely. Boy, Bass made a good time. He picked a good time to make an escape. He made a great time to run. Now, here's where history and legend and Bass Reeves' own words get tangled up a bit. What we do know is that he learned the languages and customs and the ways of several tribes, especially the Seminole and Creek tribes. And you know why the Seminoles are important if you listen to our Native American episodes and why they welcomed him in. He also learned the lay of the land and how to track without being detected. Now, 
Bass states that he also fought in the Civil War while on the run. Now, even though there's no clear record of him joining an actual regiment on the Union side, most historians will agree that if Bass did fight for the Union, it would have been with the few Native American guerrilla fighters who had formed a resistance to fight against pro-Confederacy Native American tribes and also acted as scouts and guides for Union troops throughout Indian territory. Well, both slavery and the Civil War ended for the most part in 1865. So Bass left the territory no longer a fugitive, but a free man. He fully planned to start his life as a tradesperson or a farmer. He built a large ranch in Van Buren, Arkansas and married the love of his life, Nellie Jenny, who he would eventually have 11 children with. It would have been a good life a very admirable life, but thousands of miles away, a federal judge by the name of Isaac C. Parker would set Bass on a course that would send him back to Indian territory, but this time he'd be on the other side of the law. Hmm. Well, just like you said, Courtney, Bass Reeves' life so far reads like a Hollywood movie script, so I can't wait to hear why he headed back to Indian territory, because I'm sure it's going to be exciting, so let's take a break and we'll hear the rest of the story. Okay, we are back. But before you finish, I wanna remind our listeners, if you wanna learn more about systemic racism, like the situations you're going to hear about in all of our podcasts, you can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information and take our course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. All righty, Court, what was waiting for Bass Reeves in Indian Territory? So when we left off, the year was 1875. Bass Reeves was ready to start his life as a free man, and Judge Isaac C. Parker, who had just been appointed federal judge over Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Indian Territory, the area of the country where Bass lived, had been tasked with curbing the violence and lawlessness that was now completely out of control. Now, to paint a modern picture of what was actually going on in the Oklahoma Territory, uh, where Bass had hid out for so many years, many historians compare it to cartel-run cities in Mexico and South America, or even war-torn Afghanistan. So this is that Wild West we often see depicted in movies. Oh, yes. This is the Wild, Wild West. Now, the judge immediately appointed Federal Marshal James Fagan, who went to work recruiting 200 deputies in the area to uphold the law. Now, he knew of Bass Reeves' skills, and he made sure that he found a place for Bass amongst those deputies. Their orders were simple. Arrest or kill the countless thieves, murderers, and fugitives who had overrun the expansive 75,000 square mile territory. Lots of territory to cover, and it sounds like a lot of bad guys to catch. Lots of bad guys. Now, these orders, once given to Bass Reeves, made him one of the first Black deputy marshals west of the Mississippi, and he was authorized to arrest both Black and white lawbreakers. Reeves was very well aware of the historic precedent that this role gave him, and he took it and the law 
very seriously. So I take it that if you were a deputy, sometimes you weren't allowed to, if you were Black, arrest whites. Well, if you were a federal marshal, you had impunity to arrest both. Uh Now, in states that were already established, Black men could not arrest white men. But because that's a territory and anyone not in the tribes was under the jurisdiction of the marshals, Bass had that authority. Well, thanks for that clarity. Okay, that was special. Now, Bass Reeves cut the quintessential Western figure. He stood over six feet tall, rode a large white horse, and was never without his signature black hat. He struck an imposing figure, but it was his knowledge of the language and the terrain and the relationships he had forged as a fugitive slave with with the native tribes and the inhabitants of the territory, which gave him the most almost supernatural abilities. Criminals were quoted as saying they had nightmares when they knew that the black badge was on their trail. Now, Bass Reeves could not read until later on in his life, but he would memorize the warrants as they were read out to him, making sure that he always got his man, and in some cases, woman. The famous outlaw queen, Belle Starr of Dallas, found it much easier just to turn herself in than rather to be hunted down. Now, in all reality, Bass had a relationship with a lot of criminals as well. So he often gave them the option. But when you read the the tales in an adventurous way in dime store novels, it was that fear. Now, he often used disguises and tricks. For example, one night a mother of two sons opened her door to a ragged stranger who looked like he had been walking for miles. She invited him in and he regaled the mother and her outlaw sons with a tale of being hunted down by Bass Reeves. Now, they totally understood. They totally understood because they were on the run as well. But what this family of outlaws didn't understand, the man at their table was Bass Reeves in disguise. And when they woke up the next morning, he had them handcuffed and ready to tie them up to his wagon and lead them out of the territory. My goodness, this guy, this is Hollywood. This is Hollywood, but it's all real. Now, in another case, there were the Brunter brothers. Now, when they met with Bass Reeves, he politely presented them with the arrest warrant. They laughed in his face and went for their guns. But before they could draw, Bass had already drawn first and cut all three down. Nobody was above the law with Bass Reeves not even his son, Benny, who he arrested for the murder of his daughter-in-law and made sure he saw him sentenced to Leavenworth Prison where his son served 20 years and upon release never committed another crime. Well, this is the cliche, the long arm of the law is definitely shown here through Bass Reeves. Through Bass Reeves. Now, in total, it says that Bass Reeves arrested arrested over 3,000 outlaws and killed 14. But despite his service as a legendary lawman, his jurisdiction and his uh, authority to arrest white criminals was taken away when Oklahoma gained statehood. It was now against the law for the man who upheld the law so greatly 
to continue to do so as a lawman. Mm. Now, at 68 years old, uh, Bass just took up a position in the good old Muskogee Police Department where he walked a beat until his health began to fail. Now, he died of Bright's disease in 1910. Now, he lost his position in 1907 and died in 1910. So he did die of Bright's disease, but some people say he just missed law enforcement and who he was so much that it just broke his heart. Mm. Now, his arrest record trumps Old West lawmen like Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, and Wild Bill Kickoff. He leaves them in his dust. Now, as for that Hollywood connection I spoke about, um, there have been a few indie films and fan films and TV show references about Bass Reeves, but many TV and film historians look to Bass's exploits as the inspiration for none other than the Lone Ranger. Oh my goodness. And I watched that show religiously as a child. My dad is a huge fan of the Lone Ranger as well. Now the debate still rages on if it's completely Bass Reeves, it's a little bit of him and a little bit of someone else. But uh, Jamie Foxx did cite Bass Reeves as inspiration for his character in Django Unchained, where he played a bounty hunter. Mm. Well, Courtney, I'm telling you, this Bass Reeves surely deserves to have a movie done just about his life. He and other Black African Americans were critical to the successful Westford expansion of America, which, by the way, didn't end with these colorful characters like Reeves. It went on for many years in what I call the late Westward movement. So the Westward movement continued into the 20th century with the Great Migration, right? Indeed, it did. Black African-Americans continued seeking freedom and economic opportunities by pushing westward with the vast majority doing so in the mid 20th century, well after Bass Reeves. Now, World War II initiated the largest migration of African-Americans in the region's history. During the 1940s, the West Black population grew by 443,000. That was three, uh, 33 percent. And with most of the newcomers settling in the coastal uh, cities of California, Oregon, and Washington. And this increase resulted mainly from the booming defense industries, which rescued Black workers from decades of menial employment. In fact, if um, you'll recall, we've talked about uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, and she talked about the migration route that many Black African-Americans from the South, especially Texas, took to those states. Now, in addition to people who migrated from Texas and other states to get into the defense industry, thousands more Black African-Americans were stationed at military bases. And after the war, many sent for their families and settled there permanently. And the World War II migration made the entire region younger, more Southern, more female, and most notably, more Black African-American than ever before. And that's why many Black families can trace their migration using military service as a guide. 
that's certainly true. African-Americans shared their nation's joy on VJJ, VJ Day, I should say, in 1945. But sadly, uh, the celebration turned bittersweet. We're going to hear again about systemic racism and how it comes into play. By 1947, thousands of African-Americans who had been deemed essential workers during the war were unemployed and roamed the streets of Los Angeles, Oakland, and Portland. And the reason for that was they were the first ones that were released and fired from their jobs and those jobs given to or kept by white people. Um, in that year, Black Oaklanders, although only 10% of the city's population, made up half of the applicants for welfare. And so it was a dismal time after 1945 because those jobs went away. Wow, that's really sad. Um, but were there any other cities that saw a boom? Well, there were. In some Western cities, Black African-American people actually prospered. For example, in San Francisco, men gained, and this was unusual, this was very unusual, men gained union membership and access to skilled jobs whose organizations uh, were controlled by the unions. And large numbers entered the construction trades and transport transportation, and a few even obtained white-collar jobs in banks, insurance firms, and public utilities. Uh, progress was a little slower for women because by uh, 1950, more than half continued to be in domestic service, but a few were beginning to work as clerks, stenographers, and secretaries. Uh, in Seattle, for example, Boeing had a uh, very large Black workforce that kept growing, and uh, they were doing very, very well at that time. So in 1950, Seattle's Black population increased by 5,000 people, and by 1948, the medium income of the city's uh, African-American families was $3,334, only 4% below that of white families nationally. That's great, but hearing those dates lets me know that the fight for segregation and civil rights all around the country was on the horizon. Did that affect African-Americans in the West, Aunt Carol? It certainly did. Just as Bass Reeves found himself out of a job because of racial discrimination, by 1965, the year of the Watts uprising in Los Angeles, it was clear that systemic racism in employment, housing, politics, public schools, all of those areas had made the region remarkably similar to the rest of the nation. In other words, Black African-Americans started to lose or continued to lose ground. And although they had seen uh, some growth and civil rights uh, through the Black Power movement, there was a palpable decline. And the excitement of the late 1800s that pushed Black African-Americans West uh, to find what they thought would be the promised land that faded for those in the 60s. So it was around this time that the Black Panther Party began to push for equality and justice for Black communities and many gangs who are now mostly known for crime and illegal activities got their start, but not as criminal organizations but as groups wanting to make sure that Black residents were safe at the hands of a often racist and violent LAPD. Yes, you're right. You're right, my dear niece. Contrary to what some historians would have us believe, at its nadir, the Black Panther Party had positive goals and positive results. Now, in 2020, we saw a resurgence of militancy for racial and social justice and 
Actually, that's one of the reasons we started this podcast. So there is some hope for change in the winds. For example, the election of California's U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, a Black African-American as vice president-elect, and the election of not one but two Democratic senators from Georgia, one of whom is Black African-American, seems to be ushering in a new hope for a measure of political parity. Well, Aunt Carol, I am so glad we were able to share about the role of African-Americans in westward expansion and development uh, in America. Me too, Courtney, since those old Hollywood cowboy movies really don't tell the real story of how the West was settled and by whom. Well, that brings this episode to a close, but coming up, we have some exciting episodes. We're talking about the MLK FBI files, Blacks' roles in the White House, HBCUs, and as February creeps upon us, even Black love and football. Uh, (laughs) They kind of go together some kind of weird way. Some kind of way. We trust us. We know what we're doing. But if you miss us in between episodes, you can always find us on Facebook at whyaretheysoangry.com, Instagram at whyaretheysoangry, Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online, and on our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com, where you can take the course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.